It's Monday, and you know what that means, OG? Oh, come on. You know exactly what that means. You know precisely what's coming. Uh, an exciting week of work. Of Monday, Wednesday. Exciting week of leisure. Friday thrills. Sitting across the card table from you, talking money. How great is that? And you know how we always kick off our Monday? Soldier? Well, them's fighting words. Because sailor, not exactly a soldier. No, or sailor. I'm bad for the men and women here in this basement, and the men and women of Navy Federal Credit Union. We always started off OG with a big shout out to the men and women protecting this country. That's what we do here. All of them, from the lowliest private in boot camp. We're thinking about you, private. All the way to, uh, I think we can cut it off at the two stars. I mean, above two star, like. You should be. You don't need a shout out from us. Go do your work. <laughs> no, hop to it, man. Don't you have a country to run? <laughs> we got a podcast. Podcast. We got a, a podcast. Blah. It's Monday. It sounds like something that they tell you up in Boston that we got a podcast to get done. Podcast to do right now. On behalf of the men and women. You have such a terrible accent. That's no, ridiculous. that's not good. I can't do it. Uh, let's. Why don't we just go stack some Benjamins with everybody? Let's go. Do oh, that. thank God. Let's do it. Hello there, Peabody here. And this is the Wayback Machine for traveling through time. And this is my boy, Sherman. Speak, Sherman. Hello. Good boy. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and does the future of money look like? From the end of cash to the rise of cryptocurrencies, today's guest will peer in the crystal ball and share how our money lives will change. We welcome the Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University, Senior Brookings Fellow, Ishwar Prasad. Plus, are target date funds cheating to grab some cheap returns? We'll share what's going on and why you might want to pick your own investments. And later, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to Justin. Plus, I'll be sure to share some show-saving trivia. And now, two guys who have been ahead of the curve and without cash for decades, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Planning ahead, OG. Strategery. Here in the basement. Hey, everybody, welcome to a cashless society for the win. I'm Joe Salcihai, average Joe, average, I almost said average Joe Mighty on Twitter. Where does that, I got to do that one. Average Joe Mighty, that's my name. Average Joe Moolah. That, that would be a great one. How are you, man? Happy Monday to the one and only OG. Not the fake OG. Nope. Not the the fake real OG on Twitter. Other guy talking money on the net, on the internet. Got a fun week planned. A little uh, trip down to Austin. Gonna take a uh, little plane ride, you and me. I will take the Austin trip and raise you, Ashwar Prasad, coming on the podcast today. Oh, right. senior Brookings fellow. Way better. Book published by Harvard Press, Cornell University Economics. Okay, enough with the flexing. We get it. Yes, he's awesome. You know why? Because he's with us. That's why. We got a great show. Ashwar Prasad coming down to the basement. We also have a phenomenal headline TikTok video today as well. 
we, we got to get going, OG. We got lots to do. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, now we check that box. Now we can get going. Let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines. Our headline today comes to us from investmentnews.com and this piece written by Jeff Benjamin. Oh, Lord. You familiar with a target date fund, OG? Vaguely. A target date fund is a fund in which you just pick a date in the future and your investments are managed toward that date. You and I have talked about the fact that while there are some good target date funds, generally, if you're going to be halfway there by investing, it's not that hard to pick your own stuff. However, there's a type of target date fund called a 60-40 fund. Familiar with that one? Sure. Like just a 60-40 allocation? 60% stocks, 40% bonds. It's called a balanced fund. Awesome. Jeff Benjamin writes about this. Listen to this. Despite the long and storied history of the traditional 60-40 balanced portfolio, it's quickly losing its importance as a reference point for the wealth management industry as modern markets and new realities pave the way for the latest evolution in diversification. Equity markets are at record levels while bonds are paying next to nothing and in some cases even providing negative yields. Cash and cash equivalents, finding it impossible to keep place with the persistence of inflation. Thus, and here's the big thus, the gates are swinging open once again to the mysterious and often perplexing world of alternative assets where fees can be higher, strategies can be more complex, and not all investors qualify for entry. Jim McDonald, chief investment strategist at Northern Trust says, I would bet a meaningful number of people allocated to a 60-40 portfolio should be in a higher risk portfolio to meet their long-term needs. And if they're not, OG, guess what's happening? The old 60-40 managers cheating, starting to cheat to find that uh, that yield that they're not getting from the bonds and the cash. Gotta love it. Yeah, this is is what happens when you try to uh, invest based on hopes and dreams and wishes and coconuts and whatever else, you know, you can invest in, I mean, or invest upon the stars, I guess. I don't know. I mean, when you don't have an idea of the rate of return that you need for your goals, then you have no idea what kind of crap you should have in your portfolio. And if you don't have any idea what sort of crap you should have in your portfolio, then you start just throwing stuff against a dartboard and then you go, well, that stuff looks like it's better than that stuff. So my mom and do a little of that stuff. Oh, wait, now, hold on. No, that no, that's not doing this. Okay, no, now I'm going to do no, that no, stuff no. instead. Yeah, you know that's not what's happening, though. Here's what's happening. People are buying 60-40 because they don't want a lot of risk. They're realizing that 40% isn't making anything. And they're looking at these funds 
and they're going, wait a minute, I'm not getting any return. Well, you signed up for this fund that doesn't, that, that, that historically hasn't done much. And then you're pushing back on the manager, right? And by pushback, I mean, you're starting to withdraw assets. You're taking your money out because you have no idea what sort of rate of return you need. Exactly. And the management team then goes to the manager and goes, hey man, you got to get these returns going. Well, this is a 60-40 portfolio. I'm doing exactly what the what those markets do. Yeah, we got to figure out a way to do it. We got to figure out a way to pump these returns up for the people that don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was saying. Insist on a 60-40. It's exactly what I was saying. If if as it and it all trickles downhill. If you're as the investor knew what sort of rate of return you needed to get, then you would invest in the right stuff. And then you wouldn't be going, but my 60-40 fund isn't doing what I think it should be doing. No, it's doing exactly what it should be doing. Right. It's like doing exactly what it should be doing. And, you know, that's a separate issue of whether or not the fund managers are living up to their end of the bargain. But if it's just a, you know, an ETF portfolio of 60-40 funds and not actively managed, then you get what you get. And the reason that you're getting it is because of it being 60-40. But the problem is, is that you look at that and go, well, but I heard that the stock market's up 80% in the last year. Well, my money's only up 17, so I want to get some of that 80. And then you go try to get the 80, but today's not the day to try to get the 80. The try to get the 80 day was March of last year. That's when that day was. And so you missed that day. So now you buy it today, and it goes down, and it goes down maybe more than you think because you're in a higher equity portfolio, so it's going to have more variability and then you go, well, this sucks. I didn't want this to happen. So now I'm going to sell out of it. This is what happens when you don't have an investment philosophy that's tied in with your financial plans. Ashton Lords, partner at Goldfinch Wealth Management, outs themselves, says, we use alternatives as a bond replacement, as does uh, Jeffrey Nautica, principal at Henriksen Nauta Wealth Advisors, who says that, uh, that he uses alternatives as a diversifier for both stocks and bonds. Here's the thing. An alternative is not a stock, it is not a bond, and it comes with a whole different host of downsides and unintended consequences happen. This this feels to me like chasing OG. And 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 when I first started as a financial planner, I heard this mantra over and over from people that knew better than me: don't chase returns, don't chase yield. It's gonna end badly. And I thought early on, I'm like, why wouldn't I? If one thing's paying seven and another one pays three, isn't that all I gotta know? I mean, that's all I have to know. If this one performs has performed at 10% last year and this one only does three, isn't that all I have to know? Yeah, the 10 must be better. Exactly. Yeah. A a yield of six beats a yield of two. You know, let's go buy some crypto because you've got this crypto throwing off an eight percent yield. Don't don't take that the wrong way. 8% yield's pretty badass, but crypto isn't a treasury. I was uh, doing some research for our listeners about alternatives. And so I signed up for a, well, let me rephrase. I got on the mailing list <laughs> for a company that we've talked about in the past. I don't want to say what company it is. I posted this on Twitter. Did you see this? No. This is, a, this is an alternative asset product. Listen to what they're... This is in the frequently asked question section. Why invest here rather than in a REIT through a platform like Vanguard? Oh, Lord. I know what investment this is. Answer. Vanguard is an incredible company. We're particularly inspired by their low-fee approach. OG's parenthetical, despite not 
actually doing anything associated with it. They're inspired by it, but we're not going to run our business that way. Okay. However, unlike us, their REITs are publicly traded, which hurts their ability to offer true diversification and stability. What? Because they're publicly traded, they're not diversified, truly diversified, and they're not stable. So this is the type of trash that people are thinking that they're getting. And I'm not saying that this company is good or bad, because probably they've kind of, you know, they've cleaned up their marketing a little bit, clearly not a ton, not all the way. And maybe they're being productive for their members. But to also say that it's not diversified to have a publicly traded investment versus a privately traded one is stupid. It's certainly not stable. Housing prices and real estate changes daily. The difference is, is that in a publicly traded REIT, what do you see every day? The price. In a non-traded, private, equity-type deal, what do you see? Nothing. You either get a check someday in the future or you don't. And therefore, it must mean it's stable. I put 10000 in it, so I guess it's worth 10000 No, it bounces all over the place, just like the rest of your stuff. You just don't get a freaking statement on it every six seconds, you know, when you look on the internet. Which so, totally means that it's just staying stable. It's totally stable. Yes. It's stable. Yeah. Except when it goes down by 40% and they Magic- reprice it. Magically. Then it's stable at that point. And this is the cost. This is the cost that investors get into that chase that don't know what they're getting into. And the bad news is it's not that hard. And it's also not that hard to keep it simple, OG. A 60-40 should be 60% stocks, 40% bonds. When you get into alts, add that as a third category and call it a 60-30-10. Do that on margin. Oh. (laughs) It's a a whole whole different show. 60-40-10. Whole different show right there. You get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. That's what we tell our kindergartner about eating dinner. Is that what uh, target date funds should say to their, to their investors? Well, the interesting thing, the, the, the interesting paradox of this is that most investors would actually outperform themselves if they actually just did a 60, 40 fund and left it. Alone. <laughs> right. Right. Because statistically the average investor, if he or she owned the average investment would get average investment returns. Right. I mean, if you were the average investor who owned the average investment, you would get average returns. But that's not what happens. The average investor, statistically, this is going to knock your socks off if you haven't heard this before. The average investor gets a whopping 3.2% a year. And the reason is because of all the stuff we talked about. I want to be 60 40. Actually, now I want to be 80 20. Actually, now I want to be 100 0. Actually, now I want to put all my money in crypto. Actually, now I should. Be nice, safe, and secure and put all my money in treasuries. Oh, now I should put it in the bank. Oh, now I should buy NASDAQ with it. Amazon's doing good. I'm going to do that because the average investor does that. And so if you just put your money in the 60-40 fund and got your stinking 7.5% and were happy with it, you would do double what the average investor does. But this doesn't even start there. Like we've preached for many, 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 many a decade now. Back in aught 11 when we started this. I can't you say you can't say ought eleven. That's I mean I know, I know. Yeah, okay. You can. Way back. Most people can't. I can say whatever the hell I want. That's right. It's my it's my podcast. Is this thing on? My microphone. I could say what I want, damn it. But uh, you know, you've gotta have an idea of what you're trying to get to. If you know what your goal is and you know how much money you have and you know how much money you can save, then you can figure out how much money your money has to grow so that you don't have to save any more money eventually. 
And then you can figure out, okay, I need to do this return. I've got 30 years to average it out. So what kind of crap do I got to throw in this portfolio to make this number happen? And then you do that and you leave it the hell alone. And there it is. That's all I got to say about that. There it is. I think it's a great place to leave that one. Drop the mic, man. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, before we listen to it, OG, this one today was brought to me by Sarah, who said that this is not actually even a TikTok, uh, which might be cheating. It is slightly longer than a TikTok. It's actually a, a YouTube short. Uh, isn't that the same? It, it, is, is a real a TikTok and a YouTube short kind of the same thing? I don't know. Well, let's listen, because I think this is, this is uh, your strategy from uh, the land down under about how to find wealth when you have no money. If you're a young person, it's unlikely that you have the capital to get into the housing market, but it's pretty likely you have what it takes to sell a kidney. Online estimates say that a kidney can go for $10,000, and on average, your chances of getting kidney diseases rapidly increase after you turn 74. If you're under the age of 25, you can use one of your kidneys to become a millionaire by 74, and still have two kidneys when you need them most. Here's how. Sell one of your kidneys for 10 grand. Put that 10 grand into a managed investment fund, spreading your kidney money over many different companies, the return of which should follow the average returns of the market. Now, no one can predict the market, but our best guess is to assume that the past reflects the future. We use a compound interest rate based on the All Ordinaries Accumulation Index of 10.8% and an inflation rate based on the Reserve Bank of Australia of 5.2. Your kidney money is now compounding annually while you enjoy your one kidney life. By 30, the 10 grand you got for your kidney is now past 16 grand. By 40, that 16 grand has nearly tripled. Eight years later, it passes six figures. And by 74, your kidney is now up $1.5 million. Of course, now you're 74, so you probably need a second kidney. Thanks to inflation, that kidney now costs $121,000. Plus, your capital gain tax is $347,000. But that shouldn't worry you because your investment kidney minus the cost of your new kidney minus capital gains is still 1053494. That's right. You're a millionaire and you have two kidneys. <laughs> What's not to like? Just sell a kidney, OG. Hashtag science. stackers i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug and i can already imagine some of the comments about not trusting futurists like our guest today can you imagine what the car doubters were saying back in the day oh so you just fill a tank with a flammable liquid light it on fire and sit on top of it and it's gonna move like magic really yeah great idea sign me up in hindsight really silly of those people to doubt right kind of reminds me of all those people in the Game of Thrones book doubting that winter was coming. That didn't really work out for them, did it? Speaking of Game of Thrones, Mr. George R.R. R. Martin was born on this date in 1948, so the question is, you probably watched the HBO show, but how many volumes are there in the famous book series? And bonus points if you can name the fictional continent on which most of the action of Game of Thrones takes place. I'll be back with your answer faster than you can win the battle for Middle Earth. Different thing? Yeah, okay, got it. 
Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because... Well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Hey there, stackers. I'm proclaimed futurist Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm predicting that as soon as I finish today's trivia, we're going to talk to economist Ashwar Prasad. Since I've blown your mind again, let's get back to today's trivia. The question was, how many books are there in the Game of Thrones series? This was a money-making series. The pilot of the TV show based on the books reportedly cost HBO five to ten million dollars to produce. That's just the pilot. While the first season's budget was estimated a total of fifty to sixty million dollars. For the second season, the series received a fifteen percent budget increase for the climactic battle in Blackwater, which alone carried an eight million dollar budget. But our question was about the books. And if you guessed there were seven books, you'd be right. And for bonus points, most of the action in Game of Thrones takes place on the continent of Westeros. Well, they said winter is coming in the books, which is true here in the Northern Hemisphere, but a lot faster than that, Ishwar Prasad is coming to the basement. In fact, that's right now. See ya! And here he comes down the stairs to Mom's basement. Ishwar Prasad joins us. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, I'm so happy that you're here. You know, it's... Very interesting. When I was growing up, and I'm, I think, 
not that different in age than you are. I grew up with these two television shows that were related, the Flintstones and the Jetsons. And as you may know, Barney Rubble and the, and the Flintstones way back in the past. And then the Jetsons, this great view of the future, which I remember growing up watching the Jetsons thinking that being able to talk to each other on television would be very cool. You know, <laughs> having the ability to do the things that we take for granted right now. You begin your book by talking a lot about the past and you start off with Sweden and with China. And could you, would you mind beginning there with some of the innovations happening in Sweden and China and relate those to kind of the, the past with those two countries and how they helped us get to where we are today? So I grew up in India, Joe, and even I was a fan of the Jetsons and the Flintstones. <laughs> Perfect. Um, China is uh, an interesting part of the story because the very first paper currency uh, that the world has ever seen actually came out in China. After all, China was where paper was invented. So this is perhaps no big surprise, but it was a big surprise to the Europeans and others at the time. And then Kublai came along and he did something quite remarkable. He issued a paper currency that was not backed by anything, not backed by commodities or precious metals or anything of the sorts. It was real fiat currency and he made it legal tender that is something that had to be accepted by everybody in his domain on pain of death. When I read that, by the way, I was so surprised because I thought this idea of not having gold stored somewhere, having something backing the currency is a relatively new idea. Yet Kublai Khan is not. I mean, that's a long time ago. It was a very long time ago. It's back to the 13th century. But there was a problem. Governments after Kublai Khan in China and elsewhere were much less disciplined than Kublai was. Uh, so what happened is that many of them started realizing that they could print money at will to finance war and other expenditures that led to hyperinflation. And very soon these paper currencies started disappearing because people realized that they were really not worth the paper they were printed on. It took a long time before central banks were set up essentially to uh, print money, but that could be protected by an institution that people trusted. So this is where Sweden enters the story. Uh, the Swedish Riksbank was the very first central bank that was created uh, with the specific task of printing money and preserving its value. So China and Sweden are very important elements of the story. And here is where history comes full circle. China and Sweden are the first two major economies in the world that are experimenting with digital versions of their currencies. In other words, they're not talking about completely displacing paper currencies uh, the Chinese renminbi and the Swedish uh, kroner, but they're recognizing that digital payments are becoming more prevalent and central banks need to move with the times. Uh, central banks tend to be very conservative, but in this case, these two central banks are saying we have to get with the uh, developments in finance and we're going to issue digital currencies that our consumers or businesses can use. Are we going to see a time when we're 100% digital? We are moving towards being increasingly digital. I mean, if you think about most of our transactions right now, we may use, you know, a debit card, a credit card. We may use our phone. And interestingly, in many emerging market countries or developing countries like China, 
this transition is happening even faster in China right now. Uh, when I go there, I mean, I haven't been there for the last year and a half since uh, COVID broke out. But when I was going there, even in 2019, I would have yuan notes in my wallet, but none of my Chinese friends uh, used yuan notes. They all used um, WeChat Pay or Alipay on their phones. In the U.S., uh, we've stuck to the use of cash. And now the issue is that cash gives us certain features like anonymity. Anybody can get access to cash. If you want to use Apple Pay or another um, such digital payment system, you have to have a debit card, a credit card or a bank account. With uh, the sort of payment systems you have in China, you don't need any of that. You just need to have a very basic balance and you can go off and um, do digital payments. So I think the reality is that cash because it is uh, less convenient for consumers, less convenient for businesses, and less convenient for governments is going to give way to digital currencies. You you talk about also another story. And by the way, I love that that story of you being in China and trying to pull currency out of your wallet while your friends are all are beating you to the punch with their with their mobile phone. But you also talk about and spending just a little bit more time in history before we get to the future. You know, I remember growing up and you talk about coming to the United States for the first time with American Express traveler's checks and this thing that was a fantastic way at one point to guarantee that your money would still be there and that you could uh, get a refund if they were stolen or something bad happened to them. That's also gone bye bye. That's completely gone today. That's right. Um, there are many of these uh, things that were innovations at the time. Um, you know, traveler's checks were innovations because it meant that you didn't have to worry that you might lose your cash or that cash would not be easily accepted in another country. Um, traveler's checks made it easy for an international traveler to go around the world and use that money, which could very easily be recognized around the world and could fairly easily be translated into cash. These days, traveler's checks um, have little um, value because essentially you go to any country, uh, you can pull out money um, from your U.S. bank account using an ATM and practically any country that you go to, especially in the urban areas, you can find an ATM. So this is where technological innovation um, certainly helps in creating new products and often sweeping away the old ones. But of course, ATMs still exist and bank tellers still exist. Um, there was the notion that once you had ATMs, uh, physical bank branches and bank tellers would be gone. But instead, they adapted. They started providing other forms of service, so they're still not gone. So technology does not always sweep away old things. Sometimes it does. That brings up a great question. As I was as I was reading in the first chapter of your book, you talk a lot about the past and money and what's the definition of money and how is that changing? But one word you use throughout your book a lot is this word of trust. And that in the past, we've had to be able to trust this banking system. Under Kublai Khan, we could trust that there would be a fiat currency that would work. And then as, as you just explained, leaders after them, th those currencies became less trustworthy. What's the role of banks in the future as we as we move? Because I feel like as you explain how banks are intermediaries today, a lot of those the, a lot of the transactions that we do no longer require intermediaries. And I can see bit based on reading your book how we're going to need banks even less as an intermediaries. You and I can get things done without these intermediaries. Do you see banks changing or are banks going to be like Blockbuster and we're not going to need them anymore? You know, banks still play a very big function in modern economies. 
It turns out that if you think about money, there is the money created by central banks. Those are the dollar notes we may have in a wallet or in um, in an account somewhere. But when banks create credit, that is when they give out loans, they can also create corresponding deposits. So it turns out that in modern economies, most money creation is actually undertaken by commercial banks. We think about it as a simplistic level as banks taking money from savers and giving it to borrowers, that is people who want to buy houses, firms that want to invest. But it turns out that banks can also actually create money in the process of creating credit. What is happening right now is that one of the very profitable businesses of banks that is facilitating payments is becoming less important. And you can also use uh, fintech lending platforms that would connect. Let's say you had a lot of money and I was uh, someone with a project. You could give me money through something like Kickstarter, whereby we wouldn't have to go through a bank. So banks may start becoming less important, but that raises a big question about who's going to create the credit that banks were creating. And if they don't do it, who's going to do it? There is one prospect that we might all end up relying on the government more to create credit, and that's not a good thing. I don't think the government wants to do that. Nobody really wants that. But if banks start disappearing, much as we might dislike them, somebody is going to have to take over that function, and it's not clear who will. So, so you're saying, though, banks probably just have to continue to evolve. They have to evolve, but they're going to face some very serious threats to their very profitable lines of business. As I mentioned, um, the direct connection between savers and borrowers through uh, uh, technological platforms will undercut one part of their business. If you have central bank issued digital currencies or other electronic currencies that become more efficient payment systems, that's going to undercut another business of banks. So banks are going to face significant challenges to some of their very profitable lines of business. And if they want to stick around, they will have to evolve and adapt. I want to ask you more about crypto and central bank digital currencies, but earlier you brought up fintech and Kickstarter. And I have to tell you, I have kickstarted far too many board games. I have helped way, too, <laughs> way, way too many creators. My, my bank account is not happy with me, although I enjoy some of this work that people do. But fintech, we have had many fintech creators on the show. I love looking at the Jetsons again, the Jetsonsification of money and how easy it is to use our phone to do different aspects of our financial lives, whether it's insurance or financial transactions or investing. Where's the future headed with fintech? Do you see as an evolution of, of banking that banks then swallow these fintech firms and adopt some of the ideas to bring them out to, to a more global scale, insurance companies swallow them up? Or do these fintech companies that now seem to be changing the game for people, do they emerge like Amazon and and some of these other companies have, Facebook even. You know, there is a huge amount of innovation that is going to make things a lot more efficient. If you think about traditional financial lines of business, not just basic banking to get credit or uh, for a place to put your money, but things like uh, what you mentioned, insurance services and so on, are going to become much easier to access those markets uh, with greater competition. Um, you're going to see prices dropping, a broader range of products uh, developing, and this will create competition um, for the existing uh, providers who I hope will adapt and uh, start innovating themselves. 
So this is all very good. The not so good part of it, as you pointed out with Kickstarter, is that if you have people without uh, financial literacy, not that I'm saying that you don't have it, um, <laughs> or people without digital access, now you could end up with a situation where fintech is working great for a lot of the population, but it ends up either leaving out um, an underserved part of the population or creating risks that some people don't even realize because they get dazzled by the technology and they feel that this stuff can only rise in value rather than fall. And we've already seen this. Yeah, you talk about like the GameStop scenario. Well, and I was going to say, even in the case of going much earlier back, uh, you point out peer, the early days of peer-to-peer lending where the average person doesn't know how to run a credit analysis. So we just lend money to people because we think it's a good idea. And you say that that's even changing in fintech. That's correct. So um, the good thing here again is that uh, fintech gives us opportunities for diversifying our portfolios. And in principle, you can get a lot more information about people who you are lending to. But the problem is that there is such a deluge of information that if you don't have people who can synthesize this information, uh, it becomes very difficult to process any of it. So we just stand back and say, oh, my God, I cannot uh, uh, take in all this information. Let me just trust in the technology and hope that everything goes well. And the technology can have some inbuilt safeguards, but it also has a lot of weak points. And we're beginning to realize that some of these technological innovations can, in fact, uh, create as many risks as the benefits that they uh, provide. And if you don't educate people about these risks, uh, eventually it's the small investors who end up getting hurt the most. Yeah. I want to ask that, not just even further than smaller investors, about financial inclusion, because you know, my first thought has always been that when we take uh, payments, and as you point out in Kenya, how easy they've made it for payment systems to work, that this would increase financial inclusion. In fact, you wrote that in Somalia, three quarter, roughly three quarters of people have mobile payment systems that they use, but only 15% of people in Somalia have a traditional bank account. Does this mean that we're going to see increased financial inclusion because of the role of fintech around the world? Fintech is a great way to bring more people into the financial system because so long as you have a mobile phone, um, you can access digital payments um, and it actually acts as a portal for very basic banking products um, as well. So we are seeing this happen, especially in developing countries where the banking system just doesn't reach a large part of the population. But even in a country like the U.S., you know, about uh, 5% of the population here, according to some estimates, is unbanked or underbanked, meaning it doesn't have easy access to financial services. So you can think about fintech portals as providing easy pathways. I mean, even uh, the relatively poor in the U.S. do seem to have access to mobile phones. So if you can set up uh, an app that allows you through a mobile phone to give you access to payment systems, that's great. Again, there are some risks here, uh, but I think overall the benefits are really quite significant. I come back to trust again, right? As I'm listening to you talk, this concept you bring up over and over of trust is, is the fintech world going to be more trustworthy than a banking system that people already don't trust? That's a real concern. I mean, the allure of um, this cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, the reason why it got hold of the public's imagination um, is that it promised a world where you didn't need to trust either a, com- uh, a central bank or a government or a financial institution. 
the idea was such as by through a, in effect radical transparency that is people could transact using their digital identities but all the transactions would be posted on a digital public ledger this ledger would be maintained on multiple computers so anybody with an internet connection could look at all the transactions using bitcoin that was supposed to engineer trust or at least a way around trust but we are finding that that trust can sometimes be a little um, fragile um, there are technological issues and other issues that make it hard to believe that without trust in a trusted institution like a central bank uh, financial systems can actually work well let's talk about crypto while you went there i'm so glad that you did you seem to think that the future of crypto may not be bitcoin but really just the underlying concept of blockchain is really where the excitement's going to be in the future Yes, the idea of Bitcoin was that it provide a payment system without a trustless intermediary, but it's not worked very well. You know, Bitcoin has very volatile values. It turns out to be relatively slow, um, expensive to use, and it's just not a great medium of exchange. And sort of ironically, it has become a store of value that people essentially view it as a speculative investment, uh, even though it has absolutely no intrinsic value. So as an economist, it makes me worried, although uh, you know, when I started working on this book, if I had bought a few Bitcoin rather than uh, spending my time <laughs> writing this book, I'd be a richer man, at least uh, as of today, as of this moment, I should change by tomorrow. I should have done that instead of kickstarting board games, too. So I'm there with you. <laughs> But, you know, the technology is really remarkable. And what we are seeing is that it's giving way to new payment technologies. It's um, stimulating central banks to think about issuing digital versions of their own currencies. And it's creating a financial ecosystem that is going to be, I think, very dynamic and is going to generate some real benefits. Uh, it will turn out that we can undertake many transactions, you know, complex transactions like buying a house, buying a car, without necessarily having to go through any um, complex steps without having to go through intermediaries such as real estate attorneys and so on. So there are big changes coming. But even with those changes, I think we are still going to need the government to enforce contractual rights, property rights. So my reading is that while decentralized finance, that this is called, is going to have a big democratizing effect on finance, it is also going to pose some challenges in terms of sustaining itself without the bedrock of uh, a trusted institution such as the government. Well, and that was that was my next question, which was that, um, you know, one of the reasons why why so many people love this idea is getting the government out of currency, making it not a fiat currency. But it seems to me that that's kind of a fantasy. I can't imagine a government like China standing by and and allowing some other currency to take hold in that country. In fact, um, China's experiments with its uh, central bank digital currency or the digital yuan was essentially stimulated by that. What uh, the Chinese government found was that most people in China had begun using either Alipay or uh, WeChat Pay, which are the two dominant digital payment systems. And they didn't really need cash anymore. So the declining use of cash in countries like China and Sweden, which were at the forefront yeah. of issuing paper currency initially, was what has caused the central banks to sort of react by saying, hey, we don't want our money to become irrelevant. Uh, we're going to um, basically step into the fray of the competition by issuing our own digital currency. So that's where we're going. The other interesting irony is that when you think about um, the sort of cryptocurrency that Facebook plans to issue, that will be a new payment technology. But there the trust comes from the fact that Facebook says that anytime uh, it issues 
a unit of its cryptocurrency called the DM. It'll be backed up by a unit of the US dollar. So it's going to be a fully backed currency. It'll be a more efficient payment system. But the trust comes not just from trust in Facebook, but from trust in the US dollar reserves. So even a company like Facebook, when it issues a, a cryptocurrency, relies on the trust in the underlying fiat currency in order to make its cryptocurrency work. Will that help El Salvador help their crypto experiment work because they also use the U.S. dollar at the same time? Well, the U.S. dollar um, is used by many Latin American countries that don't have uh, credible currencies of their own because the governments, uh, you know, get their central banks to print money that devalues those currencies. I think a digital version of the dollar might certainly get traction there. Uh, currency issued by something like uh, Facebook uh, might certainly get a lot of traction there. But will Bitcoin, as Salvador is proposing to do, really serve a survival medium of exchange? Bitcoin, as I said, is not proving to be a great medium of exchange. It's just yeah. much too volatile in value. And for El Salvador to sort of assume that using Bitcoin will solve any of its economic problems is, I think, uh, uh, an unrealistic hope. You end the book by looking at it from a Jetsons perspective, that the future could be incredibly bright, but you end it with this word, perhaps, right? How, how do you see the future of money and, and what surprised you as you were writing this book? So one thing that's becoming clear is that the era of cash is uh, ending. We are going to move towards uh, central bank digital currencies and, uh, uh, you know, various forms of digital payment systems, including stable coins and other cryptocurrencies. What I had not anticipated uh, when I started working on the book was that the change in the form of central bank money would come so soon. Mm. Uh, it turns out that just in the last year, a large number of central banks around the world, not just China and Sweden, but also Japan, India, Russia, um, Nigeria have all indicated that they already are or are about to start uh, undertaking trials of their own uh, digital currencies. But what I had also not fully anticipated is that this could have some unexpected effects. Not only could we end up in a world with much less privacy in our financial transactions, but we could end up in a world where rather than democratizing finance, we actually end up uh, with the already economically privileged, the rich that is, uh, getting even more of the benefits of these financial technologies. And why is that? Because even if um, finance is more democratic, digital access, financial literacy are still very unequally distributed. So it could make some problems even worse than they are right now, unless we are careful about how we use these technologies. I could ask you questions for 20, 30, 40 hours about the future. I'm so fascinated by what you do. I, I would love to go into all that. And our listeners can. The book is called The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. And we we cover maybe 2% of what, of what you cover in the book. And I'm assuming it's available everywhere, correct? Indeed, at all good bookstores. Awesome. Only the finest bookstores, right? <laughs> Thank you for hanging out with us for a few minutes and talking about the future of money. I really appreciate it. That was fun hanging out in your mom's basement, Joe. Good talking to you. Well, now it's time for cookies, so that's good. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm David Hirsch, and when I'm not hosting the Dad to Dad podcast for the Special Fathers Network, which is a Dad to Dad mentoring program for fathers raising kids with special needs, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Ishwar Prasad for hanging out with us today. OG, you and I have said for a long time that the one crypto fantasy has been 
avoiding government involvement. And the government is going to totally let that happen. Sure. Yeah. Sure, which sure. is, which is the number one reason I think that he is spot on that the future is probably as much about central bank digital currency as it is about crypto. Yeah. As he talked about big, uh, big push by China kind of leading the way on it. right Absolutely. Now. When it comes to the old days, bringing up traveler's checks, by the way, travel, I, I, I didn't get that. Were you ever a traveler's checks fan? I didn't love traveler's checks, but when I traveled internationally back in the late nineties, uh, I would take traveler's checks. I used them one time. I remember using them one time. They were very frustrating. I don't remember anything about it, but I just remember that it was, didn't you have to like sign them and then yeah. sign them again, like in front of the yeah, person or something? I'd have to walk into a bank in the new city and go, I'm, I'd like to cash these traveler's checks. Great. And then sign them and then they give you a bunch of cash. And then I walk outside and I get mugged. <laughs> it's just like the, uh, just like okay. in uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, right? It's like, sir, we have to hold this check for five business days. <laughs> Like, I will give you $1,000 for what's in that register right now. And then he just takes it out and runs away. <laughs> Let's go, hon. Like, you haven't seen the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Looks great. Let's go. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Reminiscing about my traveler's checks experience. Absolutely. It's your loved ones and your time with traveler's checks. Their application is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision, which is why and how they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple, affordable prices, and issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life and get it taken care of. What are you doing listening to podcasts? when you should be getting your life insurance in order. Today, we're going to say hi, though. We're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend, Justin. Say hi, Justin. Hi, Joe and OG. I called a few months back asking about becoming a financial coach. Joe recommended a certification, and Bobby Rebell recommended getting my CFP. I've obtained my certification and am now also going for my CFP as well as a certification in financial therapy. To help me meet possible clients for my financial coaching business, I've developed a budgeting course that I teach for free at my local libraries. I wanted to know if after I pass my CFP exam, I'm looking for places to work. Will either having done the financial coaching or having taught this budgeting course make any difference to someone that might be hiring me? If these would not have any impact on getting my next career, do you have any advice on things that I can do now that would give me a leg up when applying for financial planning positions? Also, looking for a job in the field right now is probably not a great idea for me. My current employer is paying for all of the fees associated with my education, but is in no way in the financial planning field. This means I can't ask for just a change of position at my current employer, but leaving there would leave me paying tuition. Thanks for any advice that you can give me. Also, I'm an XL. I know Grotrude will send the code. Couldn't help but flex. See ya. <laughs> Congratulations on your XL. I know you probably worked hard on that, Justin. So good work. OG digging into what he's doing. Congratulations, by the way, Justin. I remember your call. Because I remember uh, Bobby and I kind of disagreeing that that I didn't think that initially you needed the CFP. She went right for the, the the CFP. Glad to hear that you're pursuing both of those things. Also, another thing I want to say, and I think, oh, gee, this might play into what, what uh, advice you might have for Justin. But the fact that you're out there marketing and learning about marketing by creating a course to drum up business and help people at the same time. 
Thinking about marketing is, uh, I think, the number one thing that will make you hireable for other people. The thing that's different these days versus when you and I started, Joe, is that there are career paths specifically for people who just want to be advisors. They're great career paths. They have great income potential. All of the fun stuff associated with financial planning. Uh, I'm sure you remember. I remember this too. I got hired by American Express. I was like, cool. So just give me all those clients. I'll tell them what to do. And it was a little demoralizing, right? To find out that, you know, here's the box with the whole bunch of people's names in it and a phone. And you should plug your phone into a phone jack wherever you can find it and start calling them and see if they want your advice, even though you're 21 years old, (laughs) you know, and it was a whole different experience than what I imagined. But now with professional degree programs at some big name schools like Texas Tech and Kansas State and Georgia and Texas A&M and there's many other ones that I don't even know about. It is a career path that you can choose where you are showing up as, as an advisor. Now, I would not expect that you show up at this person's at, you know, this, this investment firm or this planning firm and all of a sudden you get, here's your 200 clients, go to it, buddy. You know, there's still going to be lots of mentorship and training that goes on because you can learn the book stuff, but then you got to have the other kind of communication and personal stills and then, and then just kind of beyond the book stuff. And what I'm really impressed here, uh, what, what Justin was talking about was he's doing a lot of those things now. So I think what will help in the, you know, that hiring process or in that kind of new career process, yeah, having your CFP done, the testing done and the studying done is important. You know, you got to have on the job experience too. So you can't, you know, you got to do those other things and then have on the job experience also. So this counts for that. I think your ability to stand in front of a room of people, even if it's a room of one and communicate simple financial planning topics to people and deal with questions and figure out how to answer things that people don't know how to handle and, and creatively solve problems for people will be invaluable when you kind of transition to a full-time advisor role, because that's one of the hardest things is that interpersonal stuff. You know, you can teach somebody tax law, you can teach them technology, you can teach them the ins and outs of how to solve for how much money you need for retirement or whatever, but how to teach them. But you can't teach somebody how to sit across from someone and have empathy or how to sit across the table from somebody and help them see a bigger future for themselves. Like that is just something you have to be able to do and getting in the ring and doing it, which is what you're doing right now is going to be super helpful later on. I think helpful as well. It would be to begin hanging out where financial planners hang out. Oh gee. And I think there's uh, some, some Facebook groups. I know as an example, and this is not a advertisement for our Facebook group, but we have some financial planners that hang out in the basement, right? In our group, but hanging out in whatever forum that they hang out in and asking their advice when you're ready to ask the next question. One of the most compelling things that you can do when you're young is ask older people, you, what would you do if you were me? And I think that that, uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that people like to give advice. People like to feel needed. But I think that that would be incredibly helpful. And you'd also get to know a lot of people in those forums. So I think when he's ready to start, that would be uh, my first lead. Yeah. 
congratulations again, Justin, on all the work you've done since the last time you, you called in. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Hey, if you've got a question for the Haven Lifeline, we actually, I know some people have uh, probably been holding off because they know that we usually have a line that's out the door of people asking questions. Well, guess what? We have worked our way through them and you can be maybe not next in line, but very, very close to the front of the line. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail gets you there. And we're happy to answer your question as well. Whether it's about becoming a financial planner, about your risk management strategy, maybe the debt that you're trying to get out of, your investment allocation, whatever it might be. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. All right, that's going to do it for today. Lots of people to thank. But uh, before that, we are rounding the corner into the end of the year, which is uh, why OG and I, as you're listening to this, are headed to Austin, Massachusetts for FinCon, meeting up with a bunch of the independent... You're going to so confuse people by saying Austin, Massachusetts. Independent financial media crowd. Might be Austin, Texas. Might be. We're going to do a live uh, recording session at FinCon. Decided not to do a meetup this time, but Austin will be back for the book tour. So if you're in Austin or the surrounding area, we're coming back in just a couple months. We will be there. But to the point, FinCon always kind of says we're coming into the end of the year and starting to think about the future and next year. And if you want to make better decisions financially in 2022, than you have in the past. Well, guess what? OG and his team are taking clients and to interface with them to see what it would take to add them to your decision-making team. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. Okay, that's going to do it for today. You've got it from here, Doug. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline. Picking a diversified collection of funds isn't hard and tracking them can be rewarding. Why rely on a target date fund? Second, take a lesson from Ashwar Prasad. Even though the future of money is uncertain, the core fundamentals of how you can succeed with your money remain the same. But the big lesson? Even though NFTs are the future, don't try to explain them to Joe's mom. No, I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with fungus. Nothing. Nothing to do with fungus. It's fungible. Fungible. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about where money is heading, check out Ashwar Prasad's new book, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance, wherever books are sold. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe, and it's all free. It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. 
who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, saying, and let's all say it together now. Three, two, one. See ya. If you're interested in money, you're going to love the documentary that uh, Cheryl and I saw this last weekend. This is called The Last Leonardo. There are only about 15 Leonardos known. To say I have found a picture like this is just so far-fetched. You're just going to look like a fool. This is the most improbable story that has ever happened in the art market. It's not even a good painting. So I find this painting that's cataloged as after Leonardo. The lost Salvatore Mundi, the savior of the world. For whatever reason, this picture attracts my attention. And we decided to buy it. The painting was very damaged and I removed some retouching. My hands are shaking. No one could have painted this except Leonardo. The joke was that that was a contemporary painting because 90% of it was painted during the restoration. Something's fishy here. But that's ridiculous. We have extensive technical analysis of the picture, infrared, new X radiography. It's been authenticated. Wow. Oh, God. <laughs> it should be Leonardo attributed. If it was by the hand of the master, then it would be exponentially upon exponentially more valuable. It was worth in excess of $200 million. This is the male Mona Lisa. You're now buying a global celebrity. Pour négocier ce tableau, j'utilisais un ami à moi qui en a aussi un joueur de poker. C'est du jeu commercial. It's not about art and love. It's about money. It's about transferring funds. Whenever there's a lot of money involved, the world becomes a bunch of worms intertwined. Whenever there's a bunch of money involved, the world becomes a bunch of worms intertwined. And this is definitely a bunch of worms, OG. The most scrutinized painting of all time easily is the Salvador Monday, the uh, savior of the world, which is a picture of Jesus that uh, this art collector, a guy who goes into these art auction houses and digs through the paintings that they're selling to see if he can find some arbitrage, if he can find something that's worth potentially a lot more money than the 
uh, seller is selling it for. And so using his knowledge of art to make some money. And so while he's in New Orleans, back in uh, the early 2010s, I think it was 2011 or 2012, he's in Louisiana, of all places, digging around and finds this picture that just draws his attention and is by reportedly uh, somebody who had been a student of Leonardo da Vinci's. So sends it back to New York, gives it to one of the top restorers of all. The restorer calls him after looking at it, and you heard her voice in this, and says, this is Leonardo da Vinci. This is not somebody, somebody else. And so the story begins, this improbable story of a painting found in an art auction warehouse in Louisiana, and the story of how it became the most expensive painting of all time. Before this thing got sold, and I don't know if you remember the sale back in 2017. I don't know anything about this story. I'm very fascinated by this. Before it got sold in 2017, the number one painting of all time sold for $180 million. This sold for $400 million. So number one, 400 million. Number two, 180 million. It's a big Mm. difference. And the, the bad news about the painting is there are a ton of people who think it's fake. And the cool thing about this documentary is it's in three pieces. The first piece is the story of finding it, restoring it, and the aha that this very well might be Leonardo da Vinci. And then the second part of the story is the unlikely authentication of this piece, which is incredibly disputed. There are a ton of people who are big-time experts who say this is real, OG. But the piece makes a great point of saying that most of these people, either directly or indirectly, have something huge to gain by this being the real thing. Like, they have something way huge to gain. By the way, part of that middle story, at the end of the middle story, is it being sold to a Russian oligarch through a gentleman in Switzerland. And the the dude in Switzerland is an amazing part of this story. He actually tells the oligarch that they're still negotiating for the painting with the people who are trying to sell it. What he doesn't tell the oligarch is he's already bought the painting for $83 million. (laughs) What he tells the oligarch, according to some journalists who were investigative journalists who were able to get a hold of, of the emails he kept telling him, yeah, we're at 130 million. Yeah, man, they're not budging. They're at 130 million. They're at 125 million. This dude ends up making $40 million in two days, ripping off this Russian guy. Resells it, buys it, resells it a couple of days later, makes $40 million in two days. You probably don't want that on your uh, resume. The painting has ended up reportedly, uh, widely reportedly, by the way, nobody knows for sure, but the painting is reportedly owned by the, uh, uh, in effect, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And they also make the point that this is a sacrilegious painting for a Muslim to own. If, if Jesus is considered a prophet, an image of a prophet is not a painting that, that he should own. So at the same time that he's cracking down uh, and taking a hardline position in Saudi Arabian life, he's not only buying this painting, he's also buying what is the world's largest yacht. Uh, he's 
he's he's buying up all of these treasures and toys. Uh, fascinating. And by the way, uh, if you're interested at all in sales and sales pitches, the way Christie's gets a hold of this. So when the oligarch figures out that he's been ripped off by this by this French guy in Switzerland, he decides to dump all of these great artworks and he gives them to Christie's. Christie's knows that the provenance, which for people that don't know art is the history of the art piece that proves that it's real. The provenance on this piece, there isn't one. And there's a lot of people who think it's fake. In fact, Da Vinci did his work on wood and he always used fantastic wood. This picture is partly deteriorated because there's a knot in the wood near the bottom. And so as they were, as, as it been restored over the years by other people and painted over in really badly ways by people, it was to cover up that knot. And there's a ton of people that say that Da Vinci would have never, ever done a painting on this piece of wood. And yet on the other side, you've experts telling you why it has to be Da Vinci and nobody else, which is equally as, as, as compelling. But Christie's does this phenomenal job of selling the art. First thing they do, they don't call it a piece that has a history that's in dispute. And a lot of people think it's fake. They call it the male Mona Lisa and they send it on a trip around the world and is there marketing? I say expert marketers, right? Oh, absolutely. And you know what? There's nobody in the film who says this is bad. Every single person, whether they're in art or in marketing or whatever, everybody they talk to says Christie's was brilliant because that's their job. Their job is to make you want this thing. That's what they do. And uh, to get this huge, huge amount of money by making sure that the people that really want the trophy think of it as a trophy is a great lesson in marketing and sales. Uh, big thumb up. Last Leonardo, three, really three stories about the same painting, a three-part movie, two hours well spent. Thoroughly enjoyed it. The Last Leonardo. Where, where is this at? I saw it in art theater in uh, Shreveport. So it's in theaters now, but in the next, uh, you know, in the next six months, I'm sure that'll transfer to video. Gotcha. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is... Military Appreciation Month, and I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.